You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information, whether you've been practicing national security law for years, or you're a journalist trying to understand the law, or you're a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual conference in November to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these important issues. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. Unbiased information is pretty hard to find today, so I'm glad you found us. So let's get started. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. In addition, you can find links to other books, learned treatises, and academic articles on today's topics on our website. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABA NatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Today, we continue our series on private national security law with a discussion about how domestic terrorism is a national security threat. Our guest today is Mary McCord. Mary, we are honored to have you here today, I can say. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. Let me give our listeners a little bio. Not all of them may be familiar with you. Um, Boy, your career has been somewhat amazing, but let's start most recent and work our way back. You're serving as the senior litigator from practice at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, as well as you're a visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Um, But I think people may be most familiar with your previous work, which was as the Acting Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the U.S. Department of Justice, which you did between 2016 and 2017 when a lot was going on. Uh, And you served as the Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General for National Security from 2014 to 2016, a time of tremendous activity, a a lot of foreign fighters, a lot of things going on. So uh, let's jump back, though. You are a doer, and you are an actual, not just a policy person, you're a person who has actually hit the ball home. Uh, You worked for 20 years at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. I would mention that among the cases you presided over, importantly, during some of this work was the Benghazi case which was one of the more important, difficult, and fraught national security cases, uh, I think, in recent history. Um, You've also served as the criminal division chief over an office that has uh, some of the most important cases because of its, obviously, its presence in the nation's capital. And prior to that, obviously, you graduated from law school, but you did so at Georgetown. And you served for uh, somebody who is, I think, well-known to be one of the most balanced uh, and wonderful judges, quite frankly, in the U.S. District Court for the dis- for the District of Columbia, and that is Judge Thomas Hogan. So we're thrilled to have you. 
Thanks. Thank you again. Happy to be here. So thank you so much for coming. Um, you are clearly one of the world's leading authorities on a number of uh, national security law issues, but we want to get started with an article that you wrote for Foreign Policy magazine um, after the Charlottesville attacks. Um, you argue that domestic terrorism is terrorism and should be treated that way and recognized under federal criminal laws. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, how you would conceive changing the law? So let me just back up a little bit to sort of what motivated me to write that piece. Um, when I was at the National Security Division, we spent a lot of time looking at sort of domestic terrorism and was it was it a, something that, re, that we should have a federal criminal statute um, addressing? Because right now, the federal criminal law includes a definition of domestic terrorism, but no criminal offense. And I, we also saw during my tenure in National Security Division, the use of vehicles as weapons in international terrorist cases. Um, we've seen it all over Europe, in the UK, in Spain, in France, in Germany. What we saw in Charlottesville was a use of a vehicle to commit a terrorist attack. And so what prompted me to write that piece, literally just a couple of days after the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, is here we have a person here in the United States using his vehicle to kill and injure many people, very similarly to what we saw in Europe, but for a different ideological reason, not on behalf of a foreign terrorist organization or not out of allegiance to a foreign terrorist organization, but out of an allegiance to a white supremacist view. But what made it terrorism in my mind is if you look at the federal definition of domestic terrorism, it's an act of violence that is in violation of the criminal law and that is done with the intent to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to influence the actions of government through intimidation or coercion. And Obviously, James Fields, the driver of that car in Charlottesville, is awaiting trial, and I don't want to predict these outcomes, but based on the evidence at the time, a few days later, based on what it looked like, because he was there with Vanguard America, one of the white supremacist neo-Nazi groups that was marching, and he ran into an obvious group of counter-protesters, it looked very much like he was trying, he was committing, of course, a, a violent crime, that's in violation of criminal statutes and appears at least to be with the intent to intimidate or influence a civilian population. So, Mary, can you um, just remind us uh, what happened at the Charlottesville protest uh, last fall? So in Charlottesville it, in early 2017, the city council had approved a decision to take down the stat the Confederate statutes of Robert E. Lee and also Stonewall Jackson. And these statutes appeared in a park that was called Lee Park and another park a few blocks away called Jackson Park. And those parks were renamed Emancipation Park and Justice Park, respectively. And it was in response to this action by the city council that a lawsuit was brought to prohibit the removal of these Confederate statutes. But it also became a symbolic place for the white supremacist movement to decide they wanted to go and have a rally and essentially protest the planned removal of these statues. And so Jason Kessler was the primary organizer of the Unite the Right rally, along with Elliot Klein, who also goes by the name Eli Mosley. And so they organized this rally, and they invited lots of other white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, the American Nazi Party, known as the National Socialist Movement, groups that believe in a white ethno-state, <clears throat> such as Identity Europa, etc. And 
what we've seen now by a lot of the information that has come out, and this information is included in various lawsuits that are pending about in the wake of the Unite the Right rally, is that even though the intent was in ostensibly to protest the removal of these Confederate statutes, clearly something that there's a First Amendment right to protest, clearly something that there's you know a right to be there and freely speak these these um, sentiments but that there was actually a lot of organization to have a use of force there by the white supremacists and neo-Nazi groups to come armed, acting in concert, prepared to do battle with what they expected to be counter-protesters, the Antifa and others. And that's been shown through social media postings, private channels that were used by the organizers to organize the events that actually included detailed instructions on how to build a shield wall out of wood wooden shields, how to stand next to each other and then have poles, maybe the flagpoles that your banners were on, that would be then the teeth of the shield walls so that these groups could actually advance upon the counter-protesters and engage in battle. So I say that because this was a protest. The words are protected by the First Amendment, but violence, as we all know, is not protected by the First Amendment. And before we even got to James Field's running his car into a group of counter-protesters, we had the violence that was taking place between the rally-goers, the protesters who were protesting ostensibly the removal of the monument, and the counter-protesters. So you noted uh, that um, James Field violated existing law, right? So he is going to be prosecuted under existing criminal law. So what is the gap in the law that you are um, trying to address. And to be clear, I should have said allegedly, because he's facing of course, trial. Of course, we're all lawyers. Until, allegedly. Until proven guilty. <laughs> um, so, as I've said in, in some of my writings and, the, and the, um, the article that you mentioned at the top of this podcast, it's not so much that there are not statutes that can deal with violent crimes in the United States. Because, you know, murder... Uh, assault with a dangerous weapon, these are crimes in all 50 states in every jurisdiction. And certainly, historically, we know that people who commit those types of violent crimes can be prosecuted and sentenced to very significant terms of imprisonment. Dylan Roof, um, you know, who uh, slaughtered innocent people at the church um, last year in South Carolina, was sentenced to death, ultimately. So obviously, it's not a lack of adequate criminal justice tools. The reason I advocate for a domestic terrorism offense at the federal level is because I think domestic terrorism offenses, like international terrorism, transcend state borders. And the reason so many violent crimes are a matter of state law and not federal law is because they really are local crimes that are about what's happening in violation of the criminal law in this locality. And the harm is not only to the victim, but to the community, that whatever that community is. Terrorism is done to intimidate or coerce a population. And domestic terrorism, just like international terrorism, if you can prove that mental element, is done not just to coerce the 
people in Charlottesville or the people wherever, you know, in South Carolina at that church. It was, these things are done to uh, intimidate and coerce a much bigger population. And I would say with respect to Charlottesville, based on everything we now know about what the organizers planned, what they said, what they did, that was their stepping out. That was the white supremacist group stepping off of the internet, stepping out of memes and saying, we have a physical presence. We are going to take these streets and we are going to show what a movement this is. Now, I don't want to suggest by what I just said that what James Fields did or is alleged to have done was a planned act of violence by the organizers or by other white supremacist groups. I have no knowledge of that. It might have been him doing it completely on his own, but it was done in the context of this bigger environment. And I think, you know, time will tell uh, and evidence would show potentially that when he did it, he was sending a bigger message. And so, so partly the reason I think a federal domestic terrorism defense offense, criminal offense, would be important is to sort of establish that this transcends state boundaries. I also think, and as I've written, that it's important for this country to really realize that it stands on the same moral plane as international terrorism. In fact, until the mass shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, there were far more people killed through acts of domestic terrorism than through acts of international terrorism. Yet I think when people in America hear terrorism, they almost instantly think Islamist extremist terrorism. It's understandable in the wake of 9-11 that that's what comes to your mind most obviously. But let's not forget Oklahoma City and Timothy McVeigh. I mean, that's an act of domestic terrorism. Mass casualties, not on the same numbers as 9-11, of course, but mass casualties. So I think that there are people, I, I don't think I know from having discussions with lots of different people and from a lot of different communities in my role when I was over at the National Security Division, that there are communities that feel sort of targeted by the branding of terrorism as Islamist extremist terrorism. And they they feel that, and, and I understand why they feel that, because terrorism isn't limited to Islamist extremist terrorism. Terrorism, violent extremism, far right, far left, foreign, domestic, is done with this intent to intimidate and coerce. And so I think it's important for the federal government to realize that. Um, so why do you think that the law hasn't changed? Um, what is, um, what's keeping, what's the lack of political will? Yeah. What's the reason that, you know, we haven't been able to get there? Yeah, I think in part um, there are ad adequate criminal tools, so it's not like there's a gap where people feel like um, persons who are committing crimes are somehow not being properly punished um, because that's not happening. And when uh, you know, it's not the fact that people are able to escape punishment just because there's no domestic terrorism offense. So I think that's one thing. It's not sort of a got a sense of urgency. A second thing is I think there is a lot of fear. I think when people think about creating a federal crime of domestic terrorism, they immediately think about the closest analog when it comes to international terrorism crimes, which is the material support offense. And for those who are unaware of that offense, um, there's a crime in the federal code that says any person who materially supports a foreign terrorist organization can be prosecuted themselves for providing that material support. That can be providing money to a foreign terrorist organization. And by foreign terrorist organization, we're talking about groups like ISIS, we're talking about groups like Al-Qaeda. can be in the form of money. It can be in the form of goods or services. It can be sending them night vision goggles, sending them sending uniforms. Yourself. And it can be yourself, supplying one's own self. And that's a very commonly used 
law enforcement uh, tool. That crime is charged regularly uh, in international terrorism cases. And what it requires is a designation of a foreign terrorist organization in order to, to be able to prosecute somebody who's providing material support to that organization. So I think when people think about if we are going to create a domestic terrorism offense, they automatically think, does that mean you're going to start designating domestic organizations as terrorist organizations and prosecuting material support? And to be clear, I'm not advocating for that. I've never advocated for that. Um, I think it raises a lot of policy issues and just a lot of concerns and alarm bells and red flags for Americans because and, and some and some legal issues, First Amendment issues. I mean, there are lots of organizations, organizations we've been discussing, white supremacist organizations whose views we may disagree agree with, extremist organizations, but if you know, espousing one view or another, whether it's abhorrent to certain members of society or not, is protected in the United States. And so you'd have to be very careful in designating a group that what you're designating is a group that's actually advocating and committing terrorist acts and not just a group who is, um, you know, holds a viewpoint that is uh that other people in society are not comfortable with or dislike. So I think it's fraught with peril when you come to designating domestic groups. I think also it would, you know, it harkens back to fears that law enforcement would then use those types of designations to go over, to go after certain groups that unfortunately we've seen in history get targeted for investigations, um, you know, minority communities. You could see that, you know, that kind of fear happening. And so I, it just doesn't seem to me to be worth it to kind of go down the route of creating a material support offense and designating domestic terrorism or terrorist organizations. I think it'd be too difficult to do. So what I have suggested, but there's other possible models, is is a little bit more on a hate crime model. So if you have a crime of violence that violates a federal or state criminal statute, and it's done with this intent that we've already discussed, primarily the intent to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or influence the actions of government through intimidation or coercion, that itself could be a domestic terrorism crime. So it doesn't require designating domestic terrorist organizations. It doesn't require, it doesn't have a material support element, although you could certainly have a crime of aiding and abetting that domestic terrorism offense, which would capture those who funded or supported otherwise that actual terrorism offense. And it would really be limited to situations where a violent crime or an attempt to commit the violent crime occurs. And, and that would be comparable to the way the current material support statutes are written because they're, particularly in ter- terrorism support, uh, financial support, you know, there are statutes where you charge somebody with aiding a designated terror group, but then there are also statutes where you've committed an act of terrorism or you're, you're aligned, your goal is terroristic without necessarily being uh, appended to a specific group. So that is not a novel concept, and it seems like it would be much more workable focused on the behavior of the individual as opposed to their thoughts um, or their associations, uh, which, yes, seems awfully uh, fraught indeed. Um, But just as a based on what you've seen now that you've stepped out, I guess the question is, how does this become something that is communicated to policymakers and to average Americans to better understand why it has an impact on their individual safety, maybe their voting rights, um, no matter their race, um, no matter where they live, why it's important, one, question one. Question two is, is there some urgency to this, given the speed with which these things can occur through the use of social media? 
Yeah, so I think that, you know, one reason to get this to the attention of policymakers and to really think long and hard about it, and there's other ways to go about this, is to just sort of show that, you know, um, there is a realization that domestic terrorism is just as significant and dangerous as international terrorism and, and more prevalent um, than international terrorism and something that people should be concerned about, not so much so that they don't leave their houses and they don't go to the stores and they don't go to the ballparks and things like that, but to make, to, to just, you know, it's important for people to recognize that it's not just Islamist extremists that commit terrorist acts, um, and that there's violent extremism is something that harms communities, um, and it should be, it should be handled across the board, um, not just focus on Islamist extremism. Let, let me ask you this, because so many of law enforcement, federal law enforcement resources um, are purposed uh, in the terrorism realm based on things like national threat assessments, the national intelligence estimate, and the like, um, as a process and uh, as a matter of money. Um, what would this look like? Because would this be something that it needed to be addressed by uh, those who prepare those threat estimates that result in FBI funding, for example, um, for things like cyber threats, mm -hmm. foreign terrorism? So, you know, the FBI already looks at these kind of things. Um, they already are trying are, are keep trying to keep track of sort of incidents of domestic terrorism. But because there is no federal offense, I do think the data keeping is is not great. Um, there can be things that are happening out at states that just don't get national attention that might get prosecuted locally that don't ever make it into sort of the data sets. So and as as you know, people who've been in government know that oftentimes budgets are driven by data. And so one thing that I think would be important about sort of uh, an important result of creating a crime of domestic terrorism is you would see more data, more resources putting toward it. Now, that also tends to scare people because people say more resources means law enforcement are going to go after certain communities. They're going to stick undercover officers in places. They're going to have sting operations, etc. And again, I, I recognize some of that concern, but those are tools that are used to investigate crimes, you know, across the country and across the board and, you know, can be very effective at doing so. And, and you know, it, it, it's a tool that's used. Those are tools that are used in international terrorism investigations. And it's sensible to me that in the right case with the right predication, not just, you know, willy-nilly let's infiltrate organizations, but in the right types of predication where there's reason to believe that there might be the plotting of a terrorist attack, not the plotting of a free speech uh, rally, but a plotting of a terrorist attack, that it's appropriate to use those type of tools. And so I think you might, you, you would potentially see, you know, more more resources and more use of those tools. Can, can we just, just quickly for our, some of our listeners may not realize that you used an important word, um, and that was predication. Predication is an important word because the FBI itself uh, has something called the DIOG, or the Director's Investigative and Operational Guide, which dictates actually the process through which they open cases and can keep them open and forbids uh, very clearly the opening of cases uh, on individuals asserting purely First Amendment, however offensive, however awful, rights. Um, so that was an important word, and I just uh, wanted to make that clear. Uh, the second thing is that um, you were talking for a minute about you know the FBI's availability, the statistics that are kept. One of the things that I've noticed is a lot of private organizations provide statistics on this. And um, 
One of the things that I have seen is I've seen a blog post by Karen Greenberg of Fordham University expressing concerns that you know this could take us back to a time of COINTELPRO and some of the things that prompted um, uh, the assembly and formation of both the Pike and Church Commissions. Um, are we still in that sort of uncertain landscape or is it still a little dicey how the FBI would handle this or has the legal landscape changed so substantially that these worries are, are certainly lessened or non-existent? So, you know, I would like to think we've just passed that point in time in history and that we have sort of a more, maybe enlightened is not the right word, but that's what's mm-hmm. coming to my head right now, uh, you know, more educated law enforcement, more um, guidelines that, like the Diog that you just referenced, um, more requirements before investigations are opened, predication, as we've just discussed. And so I understand, I've read that I've read that post and I understand the concerns raised there and I'm, you know, they're my concerns too, but I don't know that they should just continue to be a barrier to, to really fighting domestic terrorism with all, you know, by all means that are, that are possible to do so. And I think with the appropriate types of rule of law measures that DOJ and FBI are very familiar with at this point, um, that should be doable. I'd also say that I think, you know, I don't want, people to be confused that the tools that that are available for investigating international terrorism, I a few minutes ago, I mentioned that some of them are the same, like the use of undercovers, but others are not the same at all. And I think when you read Professor Greenberg's piece, you see that it's a good piece. And I don't think she intended this, but a, a reader who's uneducated might not realize that the tools are different. And so in expressing some of the concerns about the variety of law enforcement tools that would be available by having a domestic terrorism offense, and I think she was, I think, specifically thinking of a material support offense mm-hmm. and the designation of domestic terrorist organizations, I wouldn't want people to be concerned that FISA authorities, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act authorities, would be available for domestic law enforcement. So the FISA authorities are used against, you know, to conduct surveillance on non-U.S. persons, persons outside the U.S., and only when there's predication that that person is an agent of a foreign power. It's just a completely different tool. It's a completely different use than what you would have if you would be investigating domestically. When you'd be investigating domestically, you'd be using the tools that are typically used for criminal prosecutions, search warrants under Rule 41 that comply with the Fourth Amendment. And um, to the extent there would be other types of surveillance, they'd comply with the federal statutes that that govern those meeting all of the requirements, probable cause, and else, elsewise that are required. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. Um, you've done something that's very interesting and novel at uh, Georgetown. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what your current project is? So I'm really fortunate to be have been able to leave a career of public service in government and start a career of public service outside of government um, and with a colleague, and now we've grown um, to almost to nine attorneys, we started up an institute of for constitutional advocacy and protection at Georgetown Law Center. And this was the brainchild of Neil Katyal, a tenured professor there, and also a lawyer and a former acting solicitor general to 
have an institute sitting sitting within the law school, drawing on the resources of the law school, involving students in the work that does constitutional impact litigation. We've done a variety of litigation. We've also just done some new, neat, and novel things. Um, and because some of us, particularly myself, have a criminal justice background, we've also gotten very involved in criminal justice reform. So, um, which I think the federal government is pretty good about. The states and locals have a long way to go in some cases. Is for criminal justice reform. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the Williams case and the work that your institute recently did on that? Sure. This is a, a case of a, uh, involving criminal justice reform where it recently, I guess probably in March, I became aware of a case um, that the Mark MacArthur Justice Foundation was representing um, an inmate in Louisiana who had been convicted at the age of 16, severely intellectually disabled for a murder and robbery. Um, that many years later they found that there was a lot of evident information that the state had possessed that it had not turned over to the defense. And for those of you who are not aware of the due process requirements of the of criminal prosecution, the due process the Supreme Court has held requires prosecutors to provide to the defense any information or evidence that could be exculpatory, meaning it tends to suggest the person didn't commit the crime, or impeaching, meaning it tends to call into doubt any of the government's evidence. And the information that the state failed to provide to Corey Williams's attorneys were witness statements, recorded witness statements taken on the night of the murder that suggested that he had been set up, that everyone thought somebody else had done the crime, and that even the police thought others had done the crime. We decided to get involved. We were asked, did we have time to get involved in writing an amicus brief? And so we wrote an amicus brief on behalf of the petition for cert in the Supreme Court in that case and were, you know, wrote it fairly forcefully, arguing that prosecutors have an obligation to just turn over to the defense not only evidence, stuff that could right then be admitted into trial, but information that also might be able to lead to evidence. And that, in fact, a lot of the information here really could have been used at trial. It could have been used for cross-examination. It could have been used to call into doubt the adequacy of the police investigation, etc. And fairly easily and quickly, we got 44 former prosecutors, including the former Attorney General Mike Mukese, former um, Acting Attorney General Peter Keisler, five former Deputies Attorney General, both parties, Democrats, Republicans, scores of um, U.S. attorneys, maybe not scores, (laughs) but a lot of former U.S. attorneys, um, to sign on and really take that stand. And we were very heartened that after we filed the amicus brief, the Supreme Court called for the state of Louisiana to respond, which we thought was a good sign that this might make it all the way to the court. But before Louisiana responded, the DA there, a new DA, uh, made the decision not to defend the case in the Supreme Court and allowed uh, Corey to plead to a lesser-included offense and walk out the door of Angola prison last Tuesday um, after serving 20 years, half of it on death row, I should say. And is there any general advice you would offer young lawyers who are interested in national security law? So some of the 
best advice, which I wish I had done, um, <laughs> is to really read broadly uh, on foreign policy, current events, things that are happening around the world. You know, I was a criminal prosecutor in D.C. for 20 years. I know the criminal law quite well. But when I moved over to the National Security Division, and that job is more of a policy job, it's a legal job, but a policy job, boy, did I realize how much I didn't know. And so when I talked to young people, I and mean, when I went to law school, there were no national security classes. There was international law one, international law two. Um, if you're in law school, there are a plethora of, of national security classes to take, but I wouldn't take all of them. I'd take a few that are of interest. I would read broadly. I'd read blogs by people that, you know, have experience with foreign policy issues, with law of war issues, with surveillance issues, read law professors, read the news, just pick, you know. And listen to this podcast. <laughs> and listen to this podcast. There you go. We give you a new topic and the Black Letter Law every week. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here today. We hope that you keep up the good fight. Um, and we hope that your work on national security law continues because your work heretofore has been really amazing. We hope that you'll come back and talk to us one more time and uh, hope your clients out there realize how fortunate they are uh, to have your counsel. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening to the podcast, The Standing Committee on Law and National Security from the American Bar Association. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day, or maybe you'd prefer to lobby Congress to recognize some serious national security implications of not addressing domestic terrorism more forcefully. Or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history. And you don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance. Then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking. Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. And check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. Follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec or join our Facebook group. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.